Welcome to Intangibles, a podcast about traits, behaviors, and qualities that entrepreneurs can cultivate to help them be successful. I'm your host, Steve Berg. I'm a partner at a New York City-based venture capital fund called Lytical Ventures. Season four is brought to you by Denton's Venture Technology Group at dentonsventurebeyond.com. Operating as a boutique within the world's largest law firm, the Venture Technology Group runs with hard-charging tech entrepreneurs to drive growth through strategic business, finance, and legal advice from Silicon Valley and New York to London, Berlin, Hong Kong, and beyond. Learn more at dentonsventurebeyond.com. Also, please find Intangibles on the web at www.intangiblespodcast.com. Essentialism, in its broadest sense, is any philosophy that acknowledges the primacy of essence. The driving principle behind essentialism is that time is a gating factor, so we should do what is most important or most valuable first and only. Many people don't prioritize this way. I think startup founders, by the nature of their chosen profession, should. Greg McCowan is a public speaker, leadership and business consultant, and author. In 2014, he wrote the book Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. If I'm successful, today he's going to put us onto the path of essentialism, which I suspect most people listening either may already be doing in some form or fashion, or would agree surely couldn't hurt. Hi, Greg. It's nice to meet you. I'm glad to have you on the podcast. Um, most people know uh, who know me um, would attest that I'm a process and efficiency type. And I think of essentialism as kind of the kind of one ring to rule them all uh, when it comes to that. <laughs> um, I've never heard that description yeah, before, yes. but I like it. I like it. There's a Lord of, ring, Lord of the Rings buff myself. I, 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 I would never have taken the audacious step to imagine that essentialism could be the one ring to rule them all, but... But since I okay, said I'll it, take it, yeah, since, since you I said it, it, exactly, and you didn't have to say it, there we go. Um, <laughs> so look, I was practicing essentialism when I provided your bio. Um, is there any, I mean, is there anything specific uh, or you know, some details, things that you find relatively important um, um, of the things that you've done in your career? Um, you know, I just, I, I, I think the most important, I think what matters most is what you do next mm-hmm. in, in your career. And so that's something that's on my mind, uh, as you say that. Um, I, you know, I, I, I wrote Essentialism. That was, a, that was a big deal. It was a big deal that became a New York Times bestseller. That was, uh, you know, uh, my, uh, my children were really surprised by that. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, but even though I plan to write again and, uh, and so on. I have actually put that on hold because of what I want to do next, and that's consistent with the themes of essentialism. Uh, uh, because I, because I, I didn't just do the next book as you're quote unquote supposed to do. Right. Uh, it would be easy to do the next book. It, pay, it pays better the second time around. It, uh, you know, you've got lots of ideas to do it. The publisher's ready for it. The agent's ready for it. I mean, in a sense, everything is built to to advocate just doing it again. Uh, but instead, what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing is is a next level project uh, with a, high, a larger um, footprint 
uh, larger uh, sort of um, impact, but smaller footprint. And, and I think that can be achieved through a, through a new platform. So what I really want to do is is try to see if we can't uh, take essentialism to a larger uh, audience through through a television show. Oh. And uh, yeah, I, I you know it's very early days still. Um, so I, I recognize it's a long journey and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, but it's about, it's not just a high risk journey. Uh, I suppose it, I suppose it could be perceived that way, but because it's, because we've paid the price to really be sure that it's the right next thing, it's actually in a sense, I think a low risk strategy, because if you know it's the right thing, then anything less than pursuing it is in fact a higher risk strategy it takes you off course. Uh, takes you on to some other thing, even if it looks more certain uh, by other people's opinions and standards. So you just did three things right there. One, you illustrated a couple of principles of essentialism, which we will get to. Two, you teased a uh, television show, which I'm, I, I hadn't heretofore heard about. So like I consider you have, uh, to have broken news. And three, you've provided the perfect entree into talking about this. So let's dive right in. Um, why don't we define essentialism for those people who have not read the book? And, and let's try and talk about what it means as a function of uh, both personal life and work life. And I'm even going to qualify that work life piece, if possible, through the filter of entrepreneurship. Uh, it's, it's not hard to explain essentialism through uh, the lens of entrepreneurship because that's where I first observed it. I was working with uh, companies in Silicon Valley uh, noticed a predictable pattern, and and almost every entrepreneur knows the pattern. Uh, at some point, you you have clarity about what you're trying to do and what you're not trying to do, and and when you have clarity, that's sort of stage one. It leads to success. It drives success. There's a strong relationship between clarity and success. When you start to have success, it increases options and opportunities. You have more money to. Uh, to invest, you have uh, you know you, you've you've got a product. Uh, you know how to create products. Creating the second one is easier than creating the first one, um, and so you have this what feels like the right problem to have, um, but it, it in fact does turn out to be a problem if it leads to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more, mm-hmm. and the undisciplined pursuit of more is where is really the trouble of our story because once an entrepreneur falls into that pattern, they'll start to plateau in their progress or fail altogether. Uh, and so their success is in fact become a catalyst for failure. And, and, and there's many stories of highly driven, highly capable, curious, interested entrepreneurs who follow that ill-fated journey. This is the problem of our story, the enemy of our story, uh, the hero of our story is essentialism, which is the antidote, uh, the, the disciplined pursuit of less, so that you are constantly exploring what's essential, removing what's non-essential, so that you can actually execute, build a system to make execution as easy and effortless and supportive as possible around those things that matter most. So you you always... If followed, you will always find your highest point of contribution. Well, that's the idea. You you're you're constantly searching for that. Yeah. Uh, you're not looking for one more thing to do. Yeah. Uh, you're looking for 
the very best and highest use of you. So, so, so why isn't working harder and trying to do more the answer? Why, 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 sh- why am I trying to do less? Why don't I be like, no, I, I, yeah, yeah, we can just create more output. Well, if you're not, if you're not doing anything, that is the right strategy. If you, you know, if somebody's being lazy, if somebody's just talking about their entrepreneurial venture, but they're not doing anything, they're not taking action on it, then, then yes, you do need to start doing things. And, and there is a correlation between working harder and getting better results. But that, that correlation only exists to a certain point. Yeah. Uh, so at a certain point, um, in fact, I just was reading some recent research on this that described the productivity as, as following an M curve. Oh. Um, and the, the M curve suggests that in the early days, you're, you work harder, longer hours, your productivity goes up, but then it reaches a tipping point, starts to come down. So, that, so even though you're putting in more hours, you will get, in fact, less productivity, not just less productivity per hour. It's not just a per hour relationship. Mm-hmm. It's the to- total productivity will, will fall when you're giving more. As you continue up the number of hours you give, there will come a point where productivity starts to go back up again, but it never comes even close to where you are in the first reach of increased productivity so it's not like in the second you know peak of the m you'll get even further you won't you will you you'll never reach higher than in those in that first peak so the idea is to maintain to be in that peak position Mm -hmm. so what do you do if you want to have a higher contribution then the key is clearly not to go past that point in terms of how many hours you put in and in and uh, how busy you are. And, and in fact, you see this all the time that people get this wrong. Entrepreneurs who are constantly busy, running around, sleeping less, taking less breaks, and, and actually their business is not thriving. Things aren't actually working. Uh, and, and it's getting in their way. And it's a, what's happening is a bad idea. An idea that says, you know, that it's not an M curve. It says that the, it's just simply you do more and you'll get more. Mm. And there's, and there's something that sounds so fair about that. We buy into it. We believe it. But in fact, it's just not what happens. So if you study the people that have broken through to the next level, it's not because they've doubled the number of hours they're putting in. Right. It's because they've thought differently, thought smarter, thought better, thought more as an essentialist. What are the few things that really matter and invest better and better in the fewer and fewer things that are more and more valuable? That's the idea. Sorry. So let me see if I understood. In this M curve, from zero to the first peak, working harder actually is the answer. But once we peak, then then there's a law of, of not only diminishing returns, but negative returns. And then at the second peak of the M, there's a point where thinking more and doing less actually becomes more productive than doing more. Just so. And, and, and so the implication of the M curve is just that we, we need now to, um, to unlock the next level up through a different strategy. Right. You know, so if you take any entrepreneur, any, any, pretty much any mentor that you can have, but I mentioned television before. So if you, if you pull out sort of, you know, well, who's been successful in television over a sustainable period of time, that let's pull, you know, Oprah out, just first name on my mind. As I think of somebody right now, 
did she did she work a hundred times harder, a thousand times harder, ten thousand times harder than the, the than the next person? I mean, it's absurd. Right. And, and yet, it is true that she's been a hundred times, a thousand times, ten thousand times more successful than other people. Uh, it, it, you know, other entrepreneurs, generally speaking, and then and then other television entrepreneurs. So, so you've got you start saying, well, it's not it's not units of hours worked. Yeah. That's not the distinction, right. the differentiator. It's are you focused on the the, the right activities, uh, and constantly, constantly refining yeah. that list of activities yeah. based upon your current level of success. So you have to keep on becoming more and more selective over time. My my view is that the once you start doing that, that the contribution is actually deeper and more fulfilling to you as an individual, um, you know, done that way than done heretofore, the, you know, the, the, the way of just working harder. Um, that makes sense. Yes, I, I, yes, I think the results are, I think it is more meaningful. Um, I think it's harder. Um, in one particular way, it's harder. Yeah over time and that is that you have to be willing to say no to things you might that you used to say yes right. to you're saying no to customers you used to want to have yeah and uh and and so you so using the example that we riffed on at the beginning here it meant that i even if i started working on a book project said no sorry put it on pause and, and frankly there's a lot of people that have a have you know that's a it's a hard thing for them to do so all right i think this is i think what you're what you've done here is set the table to talk through the steps of essentialism uh from a business perspective um the first thing that we need to do is uh understand the spectrum of choices that we could be spending our time and resources on right we don't we can't just start eliminating things that we might eliminate the wrong thing so we want to be deliberate right so let's Let's talk through these steps of essentialism. So there's two ways to do this. We can talk about it conceptually. We could use case studies uh, to support those case studies, or we could, or we could do them um, right now. Which way is more and fun? I, well, I think that doing it right now uh, it has uh, has the power of relevancy to it. So let's do so it. So let's do it. Yeah. Uh, so the three steps: uh, explore, eliminate, execute. Uh, let's talk about you. Okay. Um, so I, I want you to first identify something with us right now that is um, essential to you, um, but underinvested in currently. Hmm. Essential to me, but underinvested in currently. Um, so this is tough because I'm pretty process driven. So, and I'm in a constant state of evaluation on this. But let me think of something that is. Um, I think that for my particular profession, um, where social currency is of value, um, as a person that is um, not as outward facing or not as empathetic, that particular energy is hard for me to spend. So I would say that that is something that I could benefit more, but I shy away from it because I find it difficult. Okay, so give me make make it just concrete. Do you mean are you talking like networking? Are um, you talking? Are you so talking not only networking, but networking not for the sake of it, but for the sake of developing more valuable, um, kind of long term 
in mean, relationships. meaningful relationships. Yeah. Okay. So um, what would success look like for you in that? Like what would need to be, what would you need to be doing? I don't mean what would lead to success. I mean, what, just what is your sort of daily investment in that, that, that would make you say, okay, that's no longer underinvested in, in my view. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm now, I, I'm, that's, I don't mean it's perfect, but it's, it's no longer an underinvestment. No. You're doing something you feel satisfied with. What does it look like? Yeah. So what's the daily commitment? So I think in developing, these are good questions, by the way. Um, I think in developing personal relationships, there's a lot of mental energy that needs to be expended. You know, who are they? What are they doing? What's interesting to them? What's our commonality? Um, and making sure that you kind of uh, reach out, be available, be interested, um, be included, be involved, um, you know, put your own self and mental energy into um, being interested in what they do. So I think, you know, I think in, you know, to answer this question, what I could do or what I should do is either on a face-to-face or uh, at very least through some form of communication, be more outward bound and thoughtful in my interactions with people. Okay. So let's, let's get, let's try and uh, take it, make it tangible. Is it, is it one in-person meeting per day? Is it, lunch every day at breakfast every day is it is it is that would that be okay i've arrived at what i want to do it's a it's a half hour outreach appointment with somebody that i think would be important for me to be connecting with and building a relationship with per day is that would that be success for you um i would say probably one touch a day is not enough touches in my business perhaps two touches a day so not with the same person, two, of course. Sure. So it's two. It's two. When you say touches, you, you, you're talking. I think about you said sort of either. You know, it's as it's as tangible as possible. So it's 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 in person. Uh, it's you know video conference. It's a phone call, uh, and it's a couple of those more scheduled per day. Is yeah, that right? Perhaps yes. So. Um, so let's let's say that we're talking about an additional. I mean, is an hour real? Is, is that enough? I mean, we're talking about an hour. Let's call it an hour for now. Okay. An extra hour invested per day in that. Sure. T- tell, tell me, tell me one more time. Why does this matter? I mean, you said it was essential. That means it's very important. Yes. Why is it very important to you? Just, just try and get me to like a, the the deepest why for why that matters. Something that hits home for you. Sure. So the the people that we are um, investing in, um, putting capital to work with, are people that um, we want to do business, we want to be comfortable with, um, we want to trust, we want to trust us. And that those people can be founders, they can be other investors, um, they can be people that help out with diligence. And so um, having that reliable connection and that ever-growing network of folks um, only would improve the quality of the types of things that we do and the types of folks that we do that with. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about something jugular because because you're, you, you'll already be at a point where 
where you know there there is success currently. So the question now is quality of the results, quality of my experience, yes, uh, quality of of just you know how much I can trust people. I mean, the the better the person, the higher the degree of trust, the higher degree of empowerment, uh, the less stress, the more pleasure involved. So so we're talking about uh, quite a a serious increase of the quality of your entrepreneurial experience if you get this right that's correct and the the second way of saying the same thing is is uh, uh less shallowness uh less less work that feels uh you know less it's it's less work that's that's draining less work that is uh, that you have to put a lot into the relationship in order for there to get the results you're looking for. So, so there's a there's a that's there's a gain, but there's also you can remove something that's ex- that's quite exhausting right now. Does that sound right? Well, I think in, I think broadly in in many of these uh, situations, there's a number of relationships that are very superficial, right? And you're not quite entirely sure which ones to foster and which ones to not. But you do know that the energy that you put in gives you a better chance of having a more valuable, more lasting and more meaningful relationship. Yeah, and, and there, you, there you have it. You, you just used you know, the idea, this is another way of saying the why is a, a longer lasting, more meaningful relationship. Yeah. Uh, and, and if we just riff on that for one second, I mean, I think about it, it so Warren Buffett who says that his investment strategy borders on lethargy. Yes, uh, which is an odd word to use for the most successful investor in history, uh, you know, and consistent with the whole M curves, you know, that we were just describing. The, um, you know, what what, uh, what 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 I think that means, and what he's gone on to explain is that he's trying to find the right people, and then invest deeply, and for the long run. Yeah. So once you found the right people, you don't you're not messing with them. He says, "Why would I mess with the world's best managers? I, right. I'm trying to identify the world's best managers so I don't have to mess with them, yeah. tell them what to do, yeah. give them every instruction. I want the best from the beginning." Yeah, yeah. So, you meant, I think you mentioned in the book that the, he thinks that he owes ninety percent of his wealth to only ten investments. Yeah, and and what's what's most remarkable about that is not that that's true, which is of course, important. Uh, it's that he anticipated that right. going into his investment career. That's what's more remarkable to me, that yeah. he had the essentialist assumptions going in that a few things are valuable and most stuff is not. So you've got to, that's a, a mindset, a way of thinking right. that is at the core of being an essentialist. And we're tapping into that right now. We're saying what's something that's essential, mm-hmm. something that would improve the quality and over the long run, the quantity of the results that you're trying to get. Now, we've identified what it is, we've identified why it matters, and we've identified concretely what we think it would take to do it. Right. We've approximated an hour a day. Okay, that is all step one. <laughs> and that's, it's quite a big step one. And so that's why... Can I, ask yeah, go a ahead. Question, can I ask a question about that? So, yeah. so I thought that part of it was evaluating the spectrum of choices. And we, I mean... I guess I short-circuited that by kind of knowing, you know, what some of my shortcomings are, what my, you know, kind of human frailties are. But most people, they might not, right? So do we need to talk about spectrum of choices for people who don't just couldn't kind of like hack it and get right to the point? Well, what's interesting about that is that, uh, so, so we, 
We did we did hack through choices. We just did it efficiently. Now, yeah. you, I, I understand what you're saying. If somebody doesn't know, then maybe they need to sort of look at everything in their life, take everything out of the closet of their life, have a look at all of those uh, those uh, those activities they're doing and, and finally get to something essential. But here's what I've learned post writing the book and even more recently than that, even over the last few months, in fact, is that there's a way there's a way to cut through the conceptual parts of this process. Uh, and that's what we're doing okay. by asking you what is something that you already identify as essential. Mm-hmm. We didn't cover this way of saying it, but something that's 90 percent or above on the importance continuum. Something that you just got, that you currently feel you're under investing in. Right. You're tapping into your brain's sophisticated search engine mm-hmm. that is already re- primed to do this. E- essentialism, in some ways, sometimes I thought, oh, you've got to be quite extreme. You've got to really push. It's hard to find what is really important to be. And, and now I realize that there's such low hanging fruit available. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually, when somebody goes, look, I really don't know. I mean, I mean, actually, I thought it might happen, given how you you began in your response. I thought you might say, as you started to, well, yeah, I'm pretty processed. I think that, you know, the, the fat is out. So I don't know what it is I'd be interested. But still, it only took you half a second to actually get to it. And that's for someone who cares about this and is trying to build this efficiency, this, this sort of efficient, carefully curated way of living right. already. Right. And so what I've found is that people can do this real time. And, and often when I'm doing keynotes now, uh, just I only just barely started doing this. It was quite risky at first. Uh, and even now, it always is a little bit. You take someone from the audience and say, OK, we're going to do it right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's surprising to me that people can. Mm. So that's step one. I mean, yes, you can go through a more thorough process, but I think there's low hanging fruit that most people can identify quite quickly. And I think it's partially because it's partially because the things that are essential to us that we're under investing in is are tapping on us. The, you know, the voice in some ways one can, hypothesize that it's like you know voice of conscience tapping saying notice this yeah are you noticing this yeah and we are too busy with other things to really face it or maybe we don't know what to do about it or maybe it's too hard or for in your example it's just uncomfortable so we move on to other things right but it's there and when we ask an essentialist question as we did it brings the answer immediately forward. So, so this is this is still step one, and it's one application of step one, but it's right. not a bad beginning. Yeah, it's great. Step step two is is where we say, okay, well, what's the other end of the continuum? What is an activity right now that you still engage in that is, you know, well, let's start with the extreme zero to 10% on the importance continuum, meaning unimportant, very unimportant, non-essential. Yeah. Something that you feel, look, I am over-investing in it. Right. I spend too much time on it. I spend too much thinking about it. I spend too much time in the evenings and the mornings through mm-hmm. the day, whatever. I turn to it. It's a distraction. It could, could be, but something non-essential that you are still investing in and over-investing in. What, what comes to mind when right. you think of that? So um, I'm a fairly evolutional uh, thinker, um, fairly deliberate. Um, I, I sense that what you're talking about here is trade-offs. Um, I, 
I don't, that this is why, this is where it gets harder for me. I don't find that the things that I'm doing have zero or no value. I, I, I almost can't tolerate that. Like I, I almost can't put up with that in how I go about executing on a daily basis. So I don't have those things per se. You'd really, it really gets to the point where, you know, when we're, if we're talking about trade-offs, there's very little difference between what I would be giving up and what I'd be gaining. Now it bears a lot of mental energy to determine the difference in value. Um, and, but I think what you're getting or what I'm getting to uh, and, and you're helping me is that it, 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 at some point it gets hard, right? If I, if I were to say, oh yeah, um, you know, I sit around and watch uh, television for half hour every morning um, when I get up. Like, okay, we can ditch that. Um, but I don't, ha- I don't have those things that are, are li- of little value. So, so, let's, so what you're saying is that you've already applied uh, essentialist practices in, in already shifting this continuum. You've said, look, I, I really am spending my time on things I perceive as being important. To oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yes. And so the, the so the non-essential stuff is so let's so so for the sake of the listeners let's just just clarify a couple of these things so zero television that's what you're saying um, I'm not saying zero television but my in tele- the last my in te- the last week how how much television have you watched in the last week including Netflix on demand everything well last night I watched uh, about four hours of television the Cubs were defeated in 13 innings against the Rockies and I watched the entirety of that got to bed very late and I'm cranky because I'm a Cubs fan <laughs> okay uh, week before that's the only television you've watched in the last seven days. Um, that's the only television that I watched that I wasn't doing something also (laughs) in the foreground that the television, the television may have been on, but it was in the background as I was writing an essay or sending some emails or doing whatever it was that I needed to be doing. Okay. So, so just, but just to, to, to clarify, so I understand what you're saying, but, but how much time is television on in your world? Uh, not very much. Give, give me an give me an hours, minutes uh, I, I, in the last seven days. I I can't. But let's, let's, <laughs> let's for, for the for the sake of argument, let's say that I you know all in it was six hours of watching sports and political commentary. Okay, now let's do another little test. Okay, um, I still staying down there in this area, and I and I guess it it, it could be you, you could. You could give the answers, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't in some way think, "Oh, I'm foiled now." The whole system doesn't no, work. You're right. I don't, if I don't, you said zero, right? If you said, "I don't spend any time on television," but I still want to start in some of the more the the, the, the answers that I think a lot of people do find find themselves surprised at how much that is existing in their lives. Certainly, yeah. it's happened to me. So let's do one more test. No, on that's this. a great. I think that's a great point. So, the, so the point right is, to, yeah, the point is, that I think that you're trying to say is that we, you know. We don't even know. We're not even necessarily conscious of how many things there are out there that aren't important to us, right? It, it, it's almost like sunk cost in many in, in our minds, and we need to change that mindset. Yes, absolutely. It's the difference between conscious uh, consumption and compulsive consumption. Right. If, if somebody says, "I I am choosing to do this thing," that alone is. Very different than doing it compulsively. And, and of course, what is important to remember is that a system has been created that is 
many billions of dollars have been spent to create it yes in order to make it compulsive for us yeah. compulsive addictive yeah. and invisible yeah so we don't notice it we wouldn't dream of not having cable coming into our home we wouldn't dream of not having high speed internet this is this is these are normal reality right. everything you have you just have to yeah. and 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 i'm not even arguing that you that someone should eliminate that but i'm just trying to illustrate that smartphones the, the, the you know totally. uh, high speed internet a thousand channels these things were built they're not natural states of things they were built and systematized and and made to be effortless they, they how easy it is to use the the latest app how easy it is to use uh, the 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 latest phone the upgrade and how easy it is to buy that new phone and all this is a system that has been built yeah to put us in this position Greg could I ask you I think this is a really you know, it's a really salient point. And could I ask you to talk a little bit here about the unimportance of practically everything and also the Pareto principle? Because I think that's where these, those particular things fit into this discussion. Yes. Um, yes. And then I am going to come back to this little way of, uh, you know, a little okay, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to get off the hook. So, <laughs> so, uh, so yes, I mean, the, first of all, you know, the, it's it's the the idea is that it's difficult to overstate the unimportance of practically everything, and and that's not that it feels that those things are unimportant. If they felt unimportant, I think it would be easier for us not to do them. Um, but but that these things, all this this stuff in our life, uh, comes at us, taps on us. Uh, you, you know uh, the 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 pop-ups on the phone, the pop-ups on the computer. The, uh, I mean, I could list you know many of the things that we're familiar with: the latest email, the latest text, the latest tweet, the latest news update. I mean, this stuff is just an avalanche coming at us. It feels sometimes it can feel important because it's there, it's present. I mean, very literally on our phones, it is there in front of us, and there's a deep, uh, you know, deep psychology and physiology to this that. That things that are close to us are given, you know, uh, our, our brains interpret that as being important precisely because it's close. In the same sense as if a, if a, if a bear was about to, you know, get you as one of our ancestors, a uh, bear is right in front of you. You pay attention to that. If it's right in front of you, it must be important to, to, to notice it. Well, with phones, it's tapping into the same kind of. Uh, the same kind of neurology, uh, but 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 it isn't delivering the same kind of. Uh, it's not that actual reality. It just feels important because it's right in front of us, literally in our hand, right there. So we're paying attention to it. So many of the things that are in front of us and pressing on us and sensing a, a sort of a counterfeit importance uh, are, are in fact total trivia. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is to identify what is essential and to eliminate what is non-essential, these, these, these unimportant things. And, and, and Pareto, of course, is, uh, is, is, is the economist who first noticed that there is uh, an, an unequal uh, connection uh, between the, in his case, what he was studying was the wealthiest countries in the earth. And he found that 20% of the, the countries uh, were uh, were, were had eighty percent of the wealth, and that he could also even uh, predict that that within those economies, uh, that twenty percent of the people would have eighty percent of the wealth. And he found that this was predictive in almost any uh, economy, in almost any place in the world. And so 
this is this was the beginning of uh, you know of naming a certain economic phenomenon which is really just a human phenomenon which is just a few things account for greater than seems reasonable yeah. uh, in terms of results. Uh, so it means that uh, some effort focused on just certain things will yield far better returns than lots of effort on other things, on less important activities. And so this is, of course, is a, a tremendously important principle as it applies to entrepreneurs. If you put tons of effort onto the, uh, and, and to the less valuable activity, you will still end up less valuable at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and vice versa is true. So that's, I mean, so, I mean, to me, that means the data driven decision makers should, you know, actively seek to find out which are the 20, right? That helps you make your trade-offs. Yes, certainly. I, I mean, identifying, uh, identifying the, 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 the few customers that are, that are giving you the best return, uh, identifying the few products that are giving you the the, the 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 best return, and having the courage ultimately to eliminate the things that are that that are not actually driving the right strategy forward. Yeah, and I, there there could be ways of bundling products together and services together that that together make a more valuable piece. So it's I don't want to oversimplify the subject, um, but at the same time. I mean, even in, in sort of my field, I see this being violated constantly and feel a pressure to violate it myself, um, which is, you know, so in my field, so I, I write, I teach. Uh, people who write and teach, especially if their writing is being, you know, it's being received well in the marketplace and their speaking business is, is doing well, then it's obvious what you ought to do as well is have a, um, a coaching business and a workshop business and train the trainer model. And there's all of these other things that could absolutely help, could absolutely be successful, could absolutely be profitable. They're all of those things. But what I have found is that you have to think about each additional product as if it's a completely new business. Right. And if you think about it in terms of that, then you start to go, oh, I'm not sure I want to have a fourth business and a fifth business and a sixth business. I want to have a really successful, you know, first and second business. I want those things to just work and be as effortless as possible. Right. And, and so there's a temptation in this sort of growth for growth sake model that we, that, 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 that comes onto entrepreneurs because it's kind of non-essentialism in the, in our culture that we think we have to be doing everything that everybody else is doing investing in all the activities that any of our competitors are investing in. And in doing so, we actually remove the, 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 the core of competitive advantage, which is strategically making trade-offs, not doing what our competitors are doing. Yeah. And it takes, I think it takes a little courage to do it in the, in the early days because you know you're actually leaving revenue on the table. You're actually leaving profits on the table. You're actually not doing what other people are doing. And you might even be not doing what customers are asking you for. So those are all impulses that entrepreneurs want to respond to. But if they over-respond to them, they're still going to start killing their company, even as they're trying to grow it. The, so the case study I immediately think of is um, that Southwest case study, right? Where, where he was basically thinking for himself, right? Not doing what all the rest of the airlines were doing, even while his customers were asking for them. But that ultimately made them among the most profitable for the over the long haul airlines ever 
Yeah, I should think they are the most profitable airline in U.S. history. I would think that that's that's true. Um, but what is definitely true, there was a, a, a study done in 2002 of of, um, of every company in the S&P 500 over the previous 30 years. So if you think about it this way, if you put a dollar into all the S&P 500 in 1972 and hold that dollar consistent for the next 30 years, of all the companies um, still in the S&P 500, what would your largest return have been? And the answer is Southwest to that. So they weren't just they weren't just profitable for an airline industry. They were profitable against any company uh, from the S&P 500 over that same period. So that that's to me that's pretty extraordinary. And and how did they do it? Did they do it by doing everything for everyone? Uh, of course not. Uh, did they do it by trying to outdo Continental? Uh, no. I mean, the, the, the typical strategy in the airline industry is to get into international because that's where the higher fees, especially for first class and business class, exist. And so the, 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 that's where, you know, the per- perception of like profitability will be gained there. And so, in fact, uh, in fact, they, 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 were, they have been deliberately non-international traveler. They have said, well, we want to be hub to hub. And they were just, just the U.S. for the longest time for, in fact, for that uh, fully for those 30 years. Uh, and only recently have they just increased. And they're not doing anything into Europe or anything into Asia or anything like that. Now it's, I think, Mexico and some into Canada. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is a deliberate, you know, and, and thoughtful uh, extension of what they've been doing previously. Meanwhile, you've got Continental at first laughing at Southwest saying, well, these, these, these people are, uh, uh, are, are just, um, they, they don't know what they're doing. You know, they're not a real airline because a real airline does everything that we do. And then after 10 years of watching Southwest do, you know, execute their strategy, in fact, make their strategy stronger and stronger and harder to compete with and more profitable. Finally, Southwest comes in, I mean, Continental comes in, they say, okay, we're going to do both. We're going to straddle it. And, uh, and what that meant was that they're going to create a second service line, and they called it Continental Light. Yeah. They didn't spin this out as a separate company. They just tried to mash them together. And what they found in the end was, uh, was uh, you know, they'd set records in the airline industry for complaints a day, a, a, a quite staggering achievement, really. Yep. Uh, they lose $150 million via the CEO. I mean, the straddled strategy is, is, a, is a risky strategy, but is, is so frequently applied to. So very often people are doing this uh, and, and, and for well-intended, uh, but, but, but poor strategy. He who chases two rabbits catches none. Well, it's exactly so. And, and it's actually a good little segue back to just this experiment. So, so I want you to do this, but I want people listening to do it particularly. And maybe, maybe we'll get different results on it. But, but I want you to pull out your phone right now. So this is now step two. We did step one, what is essential. Now we want to say what is non-essential. We're looking for, we're trying to find the magic time we need. We're trying to find the extra hour uh, that you need to do what you've identified as essential. So, so we're going to pull our phones just to do this. Everybody listening can, can do the same. You, you, you pull out your phone, you can go to, um, go to settings. Uh, <clears throat> I hate to tell you, <laughs> but when I'm doing this, I only focus on this. I don't have my phone anywhere near me. 
I love that you don't, but that, that means that you're, you're being an essentialist. Well, what, what people listening can do, they can oh, pull out their yeah, phones, right. but, they're, but, but they're not allowed to uh, – they're not allowed to get distracted. Okay. Uh, that would be that would be ironic. Um, but they they can go to settings, and then under settings they can go to battery. Under battery they'll find uh, they'll find that it will normally be preset to uh, to one day. It's a little blue bar in one day. They can click on seven next to it seven days. Yeah. And next to that there's a little clock face. They can tap on the clock face. If they follow those steps, what they're looking at now is is all of the apps on their phone uh, by number of hours and minutes spent. Oh, I see where you're going. Over the last seven days. And so almost always, not always, but almost always, people are quite surprised by what they find because they've overestimated their level of efficiency and discipline in their life. They feel like they are... You know, I work hard. I, I am disciplined. I get things done, and there's not a lot of fat in the pro, in, in the system. And, and they might be right compared to some people. It might be true, but they find, oh, actually, there I am. You know, two hours, three hours, four hours on searching the news. Oh, there's two, three hours there searching uh, ESPN or whatever the app of choice is. The social media. The it's 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 time we thought. I, I don't even realize I had that time, mm. but I'm using that time. I not only have it, I'm using it, and I can see it right here. Mm-hmm. Now, for you, you're saying, you know, maybe it's not there. If you had your phone, we might find that it is. Yeah. But the idea is to identify something in your case, and I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to let you off the hook. It's not the idea. I don't want to let essentialism off the hook. Let's assume that you have become a a a. a you know, you already, one time you looked at your life, you said everything on here, you know, some things are important, some things are unimportant. I'm going to focus on just the 90% and above essential activities. And you have successfully eliminated everything off. And by the way, I'm wondering, have you done that? Do you feel that there are no 80s, 70s, 60s left? You are now in the 90 and above. Is that true for you? Um, you know, I am starting to, I evaluate these things all the time. Um, I definitely feel like there are things that happen just on the cor- in the course of life that I'll let happen for a little while before I get to the point where I evaluate them to say, no, I don't need to keep doing this. Um, but for those things that have been in my life for a reasonable amount of time, let's call them three months or longer, um, I think the answer is yes. I-, I like this. What we can do now is we can look we can test essentialism at the next level. And this is really important for people who have become successful entrepreneurs. And it's like the main thing they don't do, which is, is, to, is, to, is to take the item, these new sets of activities and spread those across a new continuum. Yeah. So even though it used to be 90% important, if you have something that is 90%, that is now your new zero. Right, <laughs> right. And you're only your current 100% percentile the very most important thing yep. would maintain at 100 so now what you have to say is is you're saying out of the current activities yep. i must force rank them right. 1 to 100 right so just because the, the, the something is inherently not rubbish to you right something that you say well it used to be 90% to me that 90% item is now zero is it's, it's zero to 10 Right. 
So right. each percent is now 10%. Okay, so now I want you actually to try and do it. I want you to try and identify something that you go, well, look, I think it's important, but it's not the very most important right. thing. Right, 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 um, right. So what, what I would tell you is for that, when you get to that degree of calibration, in my mind, that's more mental heavy lifting. But let's for the sake of argument so that we can keep going with this. And I like the, you know, I like this direction here. Let's for the sake of argument um, say that uh, I do spend... Um, when I could be answering emails in a sentence or two sentences to get my point across, I oftentimes spend more time thinking about them composing because I'm too much a perfectionist and I want my emails to somehow speak more than they actually need to say. And so I really could eliminate a bunch of time with superflu the superfluous communication. I could do that at easily an hour a week. Is that true, by the way? I know you're just coming up with something, but is it true? Do you feel like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm a perfectionist of things, and my perfectionism itself might be getting in the way of progress? Um, so I, can't, I have a rule particularly about responding to founders, and my rule is that if, if you know, oftentimes, you know, part of essentialism is saying no over and over again, and that's really hard. When I say no to a founder that I'm not going to invest in, I like to give concrete reasons so that founder can go away and have something of value that they can adjust their presentation or they can think through or they can decide if I'm full of it or that there's value to that. Um, and I, I, I kind of feel like if I don't get that founder, you know, actually emailing me back after the rejection going, um, hey, thanks so much for this. This is really helpful. I appreciate it. Then I haven't done a good job. But the truth of the matter is I don't need to do that. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily have to do that. And, and not all founders really care that much or find it that valuable. Like, hey, you're not giving me money. Great. There's, there's, you know, 50 other VCs out there. So, you know, yes, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But nevertheless, I spend a lot of time thinking about my communication, which maybe I don't need to. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I, I, I wonder if there's a way to achieve what you're really trying to, to do there with a less time intensive uh, process. You know, I wonder whether, uh, you know, a phone call to sort of politely say, hey, listen, I, I, you know, here's, I'll just tell you some thoughts off the top of my head about this, uh, you know, potential sure. has this warm uh, reaction without the time investment. For the sake of argument, though, let's say that that is, that is a thing, right? And so now I've got, now I've recalibrated um, you know, yes. let, me, let me, I want to take a little bit of, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, like a disjointed, a disclaim, uh, like a, um, yeah. uh, go off track for just a second. One of the yeah. things about the book is it's really good at giving the how of making these choices. The thing that you're forcing me to do right now. Right. And, and what you're, I, you know, I think what you're trying to get me to do and what I'm trying to do, although I seem to be wiggling around a little bit, is <laughs> you're, you're, you want me to use narrow and very explicit criteria, and you want me, a la kind of Derek Sivers, to put my decisions to very extreme tests, right? That's how I recalibrate. And so I, I just wanted to point out that I think, I think that's what you're doing right now, and I think the book does a really good job of this how part. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, and 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 yes, I mean I th I think that's right. What we're looking for is to try and discern between, in your case, uh, which I don't think is actually that normal, uh, but but in your case, it's to it's to not it's to not 
sustain the idea that because I've been very thoughtful in the past, because I have constructed my life in such a way, therefore everything that remains is now approximately the same level of importance. It, it's it's obviously it, but from from what you've described, it's it's it has it has already raised above a certain level of uh, of of selectivity, and uh, and 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 frankly, it could be enough for you if you say, "Look, I'm satisfied. I'm working. This is all working for me as it is." But if you wish to break through the next level, it is still about becoming even more discerning, more thoughtful. Uh, you, you know, if if I'm if I'm an art collector, and I remember this actually early on. Uh, you know, I, I had a certain taste in art, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I would buy that art, and I thought it was important, and I thought there was, was a certain price I'd be willing to pay, and, and so on. But as the years have gone past, and I think, I, and, and I'm in no way a, a, a curator, but as I've taken a, a step forward, my taste has improved, my sense of what matters and what's valuable has improved, and so suddenly things before that I wouldn't notice, I now notice. Right. And in a similar way, what we're trying to do is not increase the workload, but increase the discernment. Yep. So that so that you're, you're, the difference between, uh, between uh, you 2.0, right, right. your current version, and you 3.0 shouldn't be more work, it shouldn't even be more perfectionism. It should be more discernment. What of these things actually is the most important, most essential yeah. work yeah. to do? Yeah. Uh, you know, back to the Warren Buffett for example for, for for a second. There's a he's quoted at least as having said uh, that the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything. Right. So. That, of course, is hard. So to do it to do it as gracefully as he manages to is impressive because he seems to be able to do it in a way that he isn't burning bridges with everybody. No, he's one of the most respected entrepreneurs and investors anywhere. He's figured out ways to be able to well, hold a conference yeah. that everybody can come to. It's fun. It's, it's, it's energetic. I like to do it. In this way, I get to give back and communicate with tens of thousands of people in person, in fact. But, but that's his way of building that system instead of emailing every single person back that that right. that, that he could could he, he, he email uh, i mean it was is it was, it was a fascinating anecdote of when uh of when he became friends with uh with with bill gates and they're having they're having dinner together and uh and and as 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 bill gates gets to know him bill is the ceo at the time of microsoft he's he's absolutely fascinated to find that that uh, the Buffett has literally one thing on his calendar on one of the weeks in his, his he has holds a calendar with him in a little notebook with all his appointments and the one appointment in there is to get his hair cut and there is not a single other appointment on his calendar all week and and it, it, you know Bill is going okay this guy is one of the most successful CEOs ever one of the most successful entrepreneurs ever he's he's obviously operating out a completely different mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so he, and he looks at his own calendar and says, oh, this is, mine is packed full. I'm operating out of an incre- greater and greater efficiency mindset. I'm going to have more and more appointments shorter, try and tie them in, try to be, it, 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 you know, Warren Buffett's not trying to do that. He's playing a completely different game. He's playing a different strategy. Yeah. And, uh, and, and likewise here, I, I want to be careful that essentialism doesn't turn into 
for, for you or for anyone into perfectionism. Yeah. That's a special form of non-essentialism, actually. Very uh, interesting. That, that, that whatever we do, we must do perfectly. Right. No. Now let's, let's perfectly do what should not be done at all. That, that, <laughs> right. That's perfectionism. And it, will, and it will stifle us. It will kill us. What we want, what I want for you is almost nothing on your schedule. Right. What I want for you is maximum space so that you have maximum options to do the thing that you now feel right. you know, in, attuned to do next. Yep. Uh, and, and, so, and so that's really, really the target. Let's move just so that we get the whole three-step system out here to the third step. Okay. The, third, the third step is execution. It means building a system that's as effortless as possible. Sure. It's a system that produces the results you're trying to produce, whether you feel like producing them or not. Right. It's when you when you feel like going out there and doing certain tasks. Fine. Now you now you're going to do it. But what about the the every other day you don't want to do it? You need a system that works then as well. Right. And when your discipline is low, so there's you use your available discipline to build a system that then acts and works for you. Uh, you know, clearly that is the case for, for, for Warren Buffett with his one appointment a week. That doesn't mean nothing's happening that week. Lots of things are happening. Right. He just doesn't have to be the one pushing the levers and making it happen because he already built the system to make the results happen, to get the right people, you know, getting, get, uh, getting Munger involved. Right. That's an important hire, getting the right person, build the system. If you've got the right people, if you've got the right support system, then results are flowing whether you're thinking about them or not. Uh, it, you know, we can go into more depth into that, but, but ultimately that's what we're trying to do so that we don't have to be pushing the boulder up the hill. Yep. You know, the, the boulder is now flowing uh, without our direct uh, effort and attention. So, so I think we are getting near to the end, but I, I like this, uh, this the, 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 a little bit more depth on this execution step. And I'm going to reel off some things that I picked up on uh, from you and maybe a, just a, a, a quick thought on its relative value in the process. Um, the first was um, keep, keep focused and avoid distraction. That seems, that seems, you know, once you've made your choice um, that you don't, you, you don't get, uh, you know, drawn away by a shiny object. Oh, yes. I mean, it, it certainly does include that. I mean, one of the ways to do that is to build a routine in place yeah. so yeah. that you, you don't have to spend t time each day going, okay, well, now what will I do? Mm -hmm. And now what's the next thing? And you use up your energy in, you know, what's called decision fatigue, right? Where, whereby, because we have to remake the decisions every day, uh, we find uh, we, we, we're 11 o'clock, we're out of, uh, you know, uh, mental energy and discipline and so then we're distracted and reactive uh, because we're exhausted and so there's a, a, a silicon valley entrepreneur who uh who invested his own money in his business didn't take uh didn't take outside investment but grew it to uh, like you know like a half a billion dollar personal uh, fortune uh and when i was talking to him interviewing him one of the things he said was that he he gets up exactly the same time every day. He goes, he takes packed lunch to work every day. Uh, he leaves work at the office same time every day. Uh, he, and and why I said, prompting, you know, prodding him. What? Fine, you've got a routine. Why? Because I don't want to use any of my creative energies 
rethinking the mundane. So you want your mundane activities to be as effortless as possible so you don't have to think about them. So that you can be thinking about next level activities. So for those people um, that pick up the book... Go in the book and find the Michael Phelps story because the the Michael Phelps story I think is phenomenal and uh, an illustra- uh, illustrative exactly of what Greg's talking about here. I thought that was great, by the way. Um, the other thing that I thought was in terms of the execution piece that I thought was really significant and kind of next level is find joy in whatever it is that you do choose to do, even the mundane things. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, there's there's sort of two ways of improving, um, y- you know, the the meaning of a moment. Uh, one is to change the activity uh, that you say, okay, I want to do something that I feel is meaningful for me, and and wherever you could do that, of course, that's that's an excellent strategy. But then there's a whole set of other activities. Uh, we can call them the maintenance activities, the things that we that that either we cannot outsource or we feel like it would be wiser not to outsource. And so they are part of the cost for getting the results you want to get. And right now they fall to you. And then what you want is to find the meaning in them. Uh, These are the things that for right now we, we either cannot control or, uh, or, or, or we have chosen to maintain. And, and so to, to find meaning, to connect the dots between this activity and why we're doing it, and why, so that we can in, it, it can have joy in this moment. I mean, I really think there's not much worse than activity without purpose. Uh, but often there is purpose to activity if we pause to ask about it. Right. Why am I doing this thing? Right. Why am I, you know, I unload the dishwasher in my house an awful lot. I'm not the only person who does it, but that job is going to be done. And I can either resent it, or I can find joy in it, and I can reconnect to the why. I'm doing this so that my home is in order, so that my family can be uh, can enjoy uh, that you know their growing up and their development, and have space and 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 you know a cleanliness and orderliness that allows them uh, the the freedom to think boldly and do creative things. I'm doing it so that I can work on the the television. So I'm doing it so that I can. And if you can if you can connect the dots between the mundane and your why. And suddenly there is joy even in those activities. Yeah, I agree with that. So um, the podcast typically ends with three questions, but I have one more non-three questions question for you. Um, before yes. we before we, we wind down, I want to. I, I know we've taken a, a lot of time here. Um, so the question is about saying no. And saying no, uh, we, we, we touched on this right at the beginning, right? Saying no over and over again is actually very difficult to do, right? We're, we're inclined to want to say yes. That is the path often of least resistance. Um, so can you, for the, there's two concepts around saying no that if you could touch on, I would appreciate it. And I think, you know, would kind of be a really good tail end to this. One is setting boundaries and the other is maintaining emotional discipline. Uh, it, your thoughts around those. Um, and then I think we'll like head right to the end. Well, I mean, they're related principles, actually. Um, you, you, build, you build the routines. I mean, you build the boundaries so that you can cope when somebody else is being emotionally reactive. I see. If you, if you don't build boundaries and then somebody is emotionally reactive in your world, they, then, then you will take on their emotional reactivity and they will, without even meaning to, control you. 
<laughs> and so you don't want the most re emotional, reactive person to be in charge of your world. Uh, that's not a great. Uh, that's not a great recipe. Right. And so, and so you want to build. You know, you, it's the old statement, right? You know, uh, fences make good neighbors. Uh, you you want to be able to get them clear within your own mind. What are your boundaries? And you might only know them or learn them by violation. <laughs> Somebody violates them, you feel violated, and you go, ah, I've now discovered a boundary within me. Yeah. Now the question is what to do next about it. And, 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 and I think it is to, first of all, write them down. Hmm. So this is what it is. Write them down. Don't immediately just start trying to express them to people. You write them down. And, uh, and then you get to think about, well, how would I want to express this going forward with people? And how might I, once I get the wording right, express them up front to people so that they know uh, this, uh, this, is, um, you know, this, is in, this is inviolatable for me. You know, let me just tell you up front, people, people respond far better to expectations like that, to boundaries, if they know them up front. Yeah. And you just express them. Then they, have to, then they can choose. Do I still want to work with you? Do I still want to do this if I know these are the boundaries? Oh, it's much better. Right up front. Here are the things I will do. Here are the things I will not do. Yeah. Here are the things that, here's, here's how it works for me. And, and if we can keep within this, this is going to work really well. And if not, that's okay. You can go your way, I'll go my way, and we'll be fine. It'll right. be fine. Oftentimes, people will actually respect that more. Um, okay, on to three questions. The first one is, did I miss anything here? I mean, you know, I think you took me through the three steps um, kicking and screaming, you, you might argue, I, I was trying to, not trying to, but nevertheless, I ended up doing that. Is But do, do we miss anything about essentialism that's like a really key point that you really just think we can't end this interview without talking about it? I know. I, I think that we sort of covered a, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is just that essentialism is not saying no to everyone and everything without thinking about it either. Right. Uh, that would be a different kind of book. That would be noism. <laughs> uh, and I didn't, I didn't write a book called Noism. And the difference really is a big difference. You've got to actually, you know, that what drives this is what is essential and why does that matter? Okay. And those become your big yeses. So that then, of course, there have to be no's. And you'd rather make those deliberately than have them made for you reactively. Yeah, that, that is a great point. Um, and honestly, that is a point that you make kind of front and center. Uh, and I agree we should have talked about that. Um, uh, I assume that you... Uh, want people to find you out in the world, uh, where would our listeners uh, of this podcast find you? Where, where, where is your, what's your preferred method? You know, I mean, I, I, mean, I communicate, I communicate on, on, on LinkedIn. Uh, people can get updates there and have a good conversation with not just me, but other people who are, who are involved in, uh, in trying to apply this in entrepreneurial ways. So that's literally one place. But in some ways, what I think people it's best for people is just is just actually be on the journey with me. You know, read essentialism, get people around you to read it together, and have experiments so that when you're part of the conversation, you're bringing what you know your lessons to the table, uh, and it's not a one way street. I mean, I think that there are people out there who have read essentialism more times than I've read it, uh, and uh, you know, and I have gone back and reread it, but. Uh, uh, but they've really embraced these ideas and they bring a lot to the conversation and a lot to the dialogue. That's a great answer. Um, and then finally, um, any materials that you would recommend besides the book, uh, it, you know, people to get started, to kind of create checklists, to make decisions and trade-offs, 
anything out there that you would point to for people? Well, something that you could add to, you know, somewhere, um, I show don't know quite, but uh, show notes, sure, is, uh, is, is a 21-day challenge that I create. It's very simple. You just do each one of each items each day for 21 days, so you just check them off. Uh, you don't have to do each item for 21 days. It's just each one you just do, and it gives you a little glimpse into your life, and it's some small wins to get you going on this transformation to becoming an essentialist. And that, that is on the essentialism website, right? Um, I don't know that it is available just okay. there, but you can, you can, uh, but, uh, I mean, Jennifer will can provide it to you and, uh, you can put it in the show notes. Perfect. Um, uh, Greg, we did it. Um, thank you very much. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, there's a lot, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, challenging conversation to think your way through. So, um, um, thanks for the, you know, creating that story arc with me and, and kind of illustrating. I think that probably helped. Yes, this is, uh, I, I am absolutely, uh, enjoyed our conversation and, uh, enjoyed applying essentialism together in this way. This has been intangibles. As always, I'd like to thank Denton's venture technology group, at dentonsventurebeyond.com for being the sponsor this season and a supportive partner. Operating as a boutique within the world's largest law firm, the Venture Technology Group runs with hard-charging tech entrepreneurs to drive growth through strategic business, finance, and legal advice from Silicon Valley and New York to London, Berlin, Hong Kong, and beyond. Learn more at dentonsventurebeyond.com. I'd also like to thank Ben Glowey, our sound engineer. If you'd like to work with him, he can be reached via Twitter. His handle is at venture underscore sound. And thank you. Keep an eye out for the next episode. I'm your host, Steve Berg. Steve Berg.